Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 7, Episode 1 A quote relevant to Chapter 7 by Albert Einstein, physicist and musician, 1879 to 1955. If I were not a physicist, I would probably be a musician. I often think in music. I live my daydreams in music. I see my life in terms of music. I get most joy in life uh, from music. Bampton to Autumn 11 miles, 5 hours walking Overnight, Bampton had become a shimmering ghost town in which nothing moved and not a sound was heard. The village was bathed in a silver morning mist. The nearby church tower was the only thing to be seen, and even that was a sketchy outline in the swirling milky haze. Breakfast was a hushed affair, interrupted by an occasional low groan of contentment. The thick-cut bacon was the tastiest I'd had for years. In contrast to Gwendolyn's burnt offering that came with dinner the previous evening, the only flames that accompanied breakfast were those reflected on the artificial fireplace backing mirror. Its warmth was all in the mind. When I returned the keys and asked for the bill, the landlady was disinterested. The travel organisation will pay for that, she stated smiling happily. We arranged the trip ourselves, I informed her. Ours is not an organised walk. We pay as we go. Good-looking and honest, too, she replied in a flat, matter-of-fact Midlands accent that seemed strangely out of place in the border counties. I had my final encounter with Bryn in the hotel vestibule whilst I was waiting for Peter and Colleen to arrive. To come here, I disregarded my doctor's advice, poo-pooed my son's pleas, and didn't once pray for divine intervention, stated Bryn with defiant steeliness. And you know what? I don't give a continental. With that, he gave me a curt nod, turned on his heels, and tottered awkwardly across the road. He heaved himself over the stile into the churchyard, and in a final act of defiance, stumbled over the graves to disappear into the morning mist. We started the walk to Orton by crossing a fine stone bridge over Horswater Beck. It was the place where we had said farewell to the Dutch girls the previous afternoon. There were no more gushing mountain streams, or the mournful bleating of sheep to keep us company. The untamed high country had given way to the lowland flat plains, where the controlled waters of a reservoir discharge and the soft lowing of docile cattle were the norm. Occasionally, birdsong brightened the sharp morning air with the magical trill not heard on the mountain tops. The stark beauty of the Lake District National Park gave way to the well-tended patchwork of a tamed landscape. The sun was kind and soon burned off the morning mist from the valley floor. The air was cool and refreshing beneath the trees, which appeared tweedy and dapper, dressed in their early autumn leaves. A flight of swallows twisted and darted, flashing signals to their neighbours that it was time to swarm in readiness for the annual migration to winter in the warmer southern climes. Although the way was well trodden, 
the path retained the freshness of a secluded and secret footpath. An Aboriginal tracker wouldn't have been fooled, though. He would have recognised the signs of a busy place. The polished iron latch on the rusty gate was telltale evidence that thousands passed that way each year. Along the way, we took our time to enjoy the wonderful countryside of rolling pastures, wooded river banks, and tree-lined laneways, the landscape where once vast forests of native oak in which wild deer grazed and rutted had made way for a hodgepodge of cart tracks and dry stone walls that bounded picturesque meadows in which contented cattle were fattened for slaughter. We crossed several stone bridges with proportions and arched stonework that were a match for any Inca masonry. The men who built these bridges had the blood of artists in their veins. The elegant sweep of Parish Craig Bridge, set amongst sycamores and oaks, was an endearing monument to the architect's aesthetic eye. The bridge was a single-file control point on a packhorse trading route. It was narrow to simplify accurate counting of packhorses for levying toll charges. Crossing a lush meadow of succulent grass, the path petered out, leaving us unsure of the way. It soon became clear that a new-found companion, Hugh, was also having difficulty in identifying the correct path. He stood motionless, peering intently at his map and compass. As soon as he spied Peter studying his guidebook, he closed in and, instead of waiting to confirm directions, set about lecturing Peter on the correct way to go. Without the slightest hint of irritation, Peter fixed on a course, and off we set, leaving Hugh blinking and mesmerised by his own confused certainty. The derelict ruin of Shap Abbey was a stark reminder of the brutal vindictiveness of religious politics. The Abbey is famous on two counts. It was the last Abbey founded in England in the 12th century, and the last abbey to be sacked by Henry VIII during the dissolution of the monasteries in the mid-16th century. Its roof was removed and the building left to decay until only a desolate tower and several ruined walls remain. State vandalism greatly benefited those living nearby. They were freed from subjugation to the church, which owned all the surrounding land, and for whom they were no doubt tithed for a good part of their working lives. Like so many other neglected historic buildings, the derelict abbey became a convenient quarry for building materials for nearby farms. King Henry's Reformation wasn't all beer and skittles. To satisfy his wife-swapping ambitions, a thousand years of Catholic tradition that had permeated every aspect of daily life in England was swept away. Naturally, some rebelled, but through trickery, lying, and murder, Henry was able to get his own way and remain top dog. In one episode of Power Consolidation, 178 dissidents kept the crowd amused as they were publicly hung, drawn, and quartered, and their bits strewn and draped across London Bridge, as a reminder of what befell those who opposed the king's will. Of course, the mayhem didn't stop with Henry's death. Henry's devoutly Protestant son Edward, from becoming king at the age of nine until his death at fifteen, used torture and death to bed down the new faith. On Edward's death, Mary Tudor, a pious Catholic, made popular the new street theatre of roasting Protestants alive. The Tudor mayhem came to an end with the defeat of the Catholic Spanish Armada during the reign of Elizabeth I. 
As Elizabeth died childless, the House of Tudor made way for the Scottish Stuart dynasty. The blood sports, which had coloured history north of the border for millennia, flowed south and more heads rolled, most notably that of King Charles I during the English Civil War. In light of such foul goings-on, it can be little surprised that nowadays Fairgo Australia favours republicanism. Crossing the Abbey Bridge symbolised our official departure from the Lakelands. In places, the River Lothar defines the boundary of the Lake District National Park. The Lakelands were a wonderful introduction to our long-distance trekking. We owe an enduring debt of thanks to Wainwright and his ilk for their long fight to establish national parks and walking trails throughout Britain. It was the persistence of far-sighted lobbyists that prized open the countryside to make cherished places accessible to everybody. When travelling eastwards, Shap is about one-third along the coast-to-coast trail. During Sunday lunchtime, the village was deserted and at rest. In the distance, the throaty growl of sports cars cut through the silence. For the next fifteen minutes, the French Austin Healy Owners Club treated us to an exclusive parade of open-topped Austin Healy 3000s as they motored by. Do you think Austin Healy's are as natural as a bird's nest? I asked Peter. After a few minutes, he answered, Yes, I do, provided you concede that intelligence is the upshot of evolution and not a God-given faculty. Peter's reply got me pondering upon thought processes. Normally, I think in terms of words or internal dialogue. As a student engineer, I spent most time calculating things and so lived in the language of mathematics and thinking in numbers. When dreaming, that is, dreams I can remember, I perceive in terms of mental pictures. When walking down the city street, full of people, I see the place as moving pictures, but I'm aware of evaluating what's going on in terms of words and impressions. Quite often, when driving a car, I feel as though I've been on automatic pilot. I arrive home fully engaged with the program on the wireless, but oblivious of what's been happening on the road. As for thinking in music, the only time that happens to me nowadays is when I ask a pub landlord or a restaurateur to turn down the background music, or better still, off. Things are different when walking alone in the countryside, where there are few distractions. In particular, there are few people to demand attention, and so little energy is consumed in the complexities of communication. With luck, the rhythm of each footfall may induce a state of calm immediacy in which one becomes relaxed and at one with all around. In that heightened state of awareness, there's no need for thought. All that's required is to be.